In between episode 16, it's fragile. That's my 2017 roll-up of the healthcare industry. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Here's my roll-up of the healthcare industry in 2017. It's fragile. And its fragility is standing naked in the spotlight right now. How am I defining fragile? I'm defining it as the opposite of anti-fragile a term coined by Nassim Nicholas Tlaib in his book entitled Anti-Fragile. The book Anti-Fragile was recommended to me by Don Lee. Don, by the way, is the host of the Healthcare Biz podcast. Here's the explanation. Back to Anti-Fragile. In the English language, there's really no opposite to the word fragile. Most people, if you ask them what the opposite of fragile is, would say robust, for example, or solid or resilient. But these terms aren't actually the opposite of fragile. They just kind of mean less fragile, like you have to hit it harder to break it. The opposite of fragile, if you start to think about it, would be something that actually strengthens the more it's smacked. In his anti-fragile book, Tlaib makes abundantly clear that in volatile or disorderly environments, unless a process or company or system is anti-fragile, eventually it's going to break. How does he define a volatile environment? He lists 15 adjectives. Here they are. Uncertainty, variability, imperfect, incomplete knowledge, chance, the unknown, randomness, turmoil, stressors, errors, dispersion of outcomes. Hmm. This is an environment I think that sounds familiar. <laughs> it's every day in the healthcare industry at the organizational level and at the patient level as well. But I'd suggest strongly that the way we've built the industry is really super fragile. And why do I say this? Because it's just so easy to break down. It's so easy to create situations ripe for errors, ripe for unattenuated risk and inefficiencies and fraud. So what does built to win look like in this environment? Well, you can't domesticate disorder, volatility, or uncertainty, so you have to expect it, really thrive on it. You have to be anti-fragile. The second that I realized this as a business owner, I made it my goal to build a system that is strengthened by stressors because the stressors aren't going to go away. So it's either be strengthened by them or suffer from them. You know, the whole that which does not kill you makes you stronger grasshopper style. So I sat down and came up with what I consider to be the requirements for us to be an anti-fragile organization. But these roles, requirements, I think apply to almost anyone in any business in the healthcare industry. Here's the first one. I'm going to call it end game. Or more specifically, everybody on the team understanding what the end game is. Does everyone on the team know what good looks like? Does everyone, you know, every janitor in the hospital, for example, understand their critical role in preventing sepsis? Does every medical assistant really know what perfectly taking care of a patient means? How is this trained and reinforced and managed to? Or let's talk about quality scores. If I ask an average physician if they think the data they're pecking away into their EHR adds up to something that will further patient care, you know, like how many would agree? 
Most would probably vehemently argue that the opposite is the case, that collecting data for quality scores actually diminishes their ability to care for patients. So clearly, there's a bit of a misalignment among various parties as to what the end game is. If we're talking about the healthcare industry and everybody getting on the same page relative to the end game, I have my eye on value-based contracts and bundled payments and direct contracting by employers to centers of excellence. I think all of those in some iteration show a path forward here because they align everyone at least around a short-term end game and create economics around to incent those, those end games. Here's the second what I consider requirement for an anti-fragile organization. It's that people and processes are balanced. This is what I mean by that. It doesn't work to have a process that's smarter than the people executing the process. It it just, it doesn't. There's a lot of books that suggest that you can do that, that if your process is super strong and you have beaten people into submission and they just follow the steps, that this is going to be a really efficient way to proceed. But I would call it an (laughs) e-myth. In my 25 years of experience, unless you've got a factory and you're stamping out identical widgets, there is always judgment involved. And if you're in a volatile environment, there's a lot of judgment involved. So your people have to be good and your processes have to be just as good to ensure that the best practices are standard practices and continuous improvement of processes is always underway. How you get people and processes in balance is with training and it's with minimizing turnover and it's with ensuring that there is a dialogue between leadership and the feet on the street that has to do with morale and empowerment tough stuff and then on the process side wow there's any number of books on six sigma but unless your people unless our people navigate the process understanding that the process is a guidepost but that their brains are equally important. They can't just turn their brains off, that they have to use their judgment, use their smarts in order to make sure that the goal of the next step is accomplished by the process of doing the next step. Sooner or later, it's going to break and it's going to break big. Here's requirement number three, overlap. If you try to cut out overlap, What you cut out is quality control and you introduce scary risk of error. But as PCPs have diminished and greater numbers of specialists for ever number of narrower things, the question to ask ourselves is, are there gaps in care for patients or contraindicated drug combinations that result when specialists don't communicate, much less consider themselves part of a larger initiative to get the patient well in concert with their peers? And all those gaps or contraindications or they all spell fragile. Tech is also kind of fragile, usually. We try to be all efficient when we go from code to care. See, that's the new form of bench to bedside. But I myself and everybody else who ever coded anything can certainly tell you that it's really tough to pre-anticipate every variable and the second and third order consequences of different combinations of those variables. It's also pretty clear that computers have no common sense. So they will trundle down a ridiculous path to no good place with zero hesitation. 
What do I see as bright spots? I think medical homes are great in their various names and iterations. Coordinating care basically means ensuring overlap. It means that someone is looking over what everyone else is doing or not doing and making sure that all those disparate pieces fit together. I think also the focus on patient engagement or just engagement, the focus on shared decision making, those create certain overlaps in the system, which are essential. Also, the promise of AI or machine learning is bright. And I say this with all due respect for the difficulties here. (laughs) As anyone who has worked in AI can tell you the kind of bad things that happen before the AI gets trained to not do that again. So there's a timeline and an experience curve here. But I feel like the regular algorithm is going to be unlikely to change the world. It just can't think well enough to not fall prey to the variability that exists among human patients at some juncture or another. I was going to say that maybe algorithms can stand in cases when it's used to like streamline the collection and surfacing of information. But then I immediately disagreed with myself because it's exactly these kinds of algorithms that got us into the place where alert fatigue is every burnt out doctor's middle name. Here's my fourth rule slash requirement for an anti-fragile organization. It has to allow for small mistakes. This whole fail-fast movement, this whole Six Sigma, continuous improvement, Toyota manufacturing process, there's probably half a library somewhere filled up with books showing conclusively that if you want to create a system that continues to function in a volatile and changing environment, you have to allow for small errors. And by small errors, I mean like you can scratch the car, but you can't total it. You have to be able to tinker to see what works and what doesn't work and refine it and to disassemble it and put it back together better. It's like if they tested the Titanic ship design on a smaller boat a little closer to home, there might not have been a giant shipwreck in the middle of the Arctic Sea. But then again, maybe the Titanic prevented an even larger ship from being built and sinking and being even more deadly. But how do we allow for small mistakes in healthcare? It's tricky. (laughs) Obviously, there's lives on the line here. Ways I've seen people successfully tinker, if you will. You might do what Roy Rosen was talking about in episode 139, doing fast little pilots for elements of a care plan that will be, you know, overlap that are covered elsewhere. So should something happen in the experiment, it's it's covered by the, the standard process. Or it's running a test system like Chris Cornu mentioned in episode 125, or it's doing what Dr. Giddy Stein was talking about in episode 160, where his company Metaware ran a retroactive simulation first. So it's possible with patient care and probably even more possible with the important stuff that transpires around traditional care, but affects care like nutrition or environmental factors. Those are ripe for some experimentation and the bar's pretty low, if you ask me. All right, so let's now talk about some overarching themes that don't help. There's a bunch of reasons why I think achieving, especially in more traditional healthcare business, why achieving anti-fragility is kind of a heavy lift. Number one, success is a flat line. What I mean by that is that if you consider yourself successful or if your company considers itself successful, you do not improve. Whereas, if you identify problems or gaps within what you're doing and you fix them, then you're on an upward trajectory. 
If you think about this, in order to recognize a problem or a gap, you kind of need a feedback loop. Because if you think everything you're putting out there is gold, because you don't know otherwise, then the slope defining your progress is as flat as a pancake. Or it might even be descending. Consider publication bias, this idea that unless a researcher uncovers success, they do not publish. So it could be well known by somebody that this new thing you just heard about not only doesn't work but causes harm, except you don't know that because nobody wrote about it, so you try it out. And then there's no feedback loop, so you consider to have poorer results than you did prior to learning your new trick. One of the points that Alex Akers mentioned on podcast 154 is how it might be the exception more than the rule that care teams have feedback loops. A patient could ultimately die and a care team might not know about it. Or my grandmother is in the hospital right now and no one is working together. Lunch trays keep getting removed before she's looked at them and all kinds of subpar non-actions are being taken. But she's 97 and if she dies, everyone on the floor will feel sad that there was nothing they could do to help her. And this prevents outcomes from leveling up. You can't improve outcomes without continuous improvement and you can't continuously improve without feedback. This might have contributed to the horrifying rise in maternal deaths in this country, as articulated by Juan Segura Pablo of Baby Scripts in upcoming episode 165, when every other rich nation in the world is busy reducing maternal deaths, ours are rising, it's double. Maternal deaths are double what they were in 1987. This also could potentially have led to the number of medical errors and continuing horrific number of deaths caused by medical errors, third leading cause of death in this country today. And maybe it has contributed to why we can't seem to manage sepsis well in this country and why some docs don't follow the bundle protocols despite there being more proof that they work than proof that they don't or proof that any other protocol is better. Here's another example. I was talking to someone the other day who questioned an oncologist's use of a new oncology drug for a patient when the evidence showed that this particular patient was not a candidate for the drug and the side effects of the med were pretty terrible. And the oncologist responded, oh, everyone's prescribing it over at, insert large, highly ranked cancer center here. This happens often, and it happens so often, in fact, that it is actually a pharmaceutical manufacturer strategy. And there are whole companies devoted to getting thought leaders to prescribe meds, because if they do, everyone else will do so, too. In fact, there's a term. It's iatrogenics. Have you heard of it before? I had not. <laughs> it means relating to an illness caused by medical examination or treatment. I think it might actually prove my point that so few of us are familiar with this term, much less this concept. We don't often think about the harm that's being done by an intervention. We don't reward people, especially in the medical profession, for doing nothing. A back surgeon who does not do 50 surgeries that weren't necessary doesn't win any awards or get their photo on the cover of a magazine for saving someone's life who would have likely died from some complication. I'm going to further prove my point by mentioning the horrifying waste in healthcare today. Experts estimate the U.S. healthcare system wastes $765 billion annually. That's about a quarter of all the money that's spent. No feedback loop means that healthcare doesn't improve outcomes, and it makes the system very, very fragile and breakable. It's just that no one even knows when it broke. Here's a number two theme that diminishes our capacity to become anti-fragile as an industry. All of this rapid scaling caused by 
mergers and acquisitions and consolidations. It is a monumental challenge to pervade an organization with a culture, let alone an anti-fragile culture, when teams just doubled or tripled in size and there are fireballs flying everywhere in the change management war room up in headquarters. And as everybody knows, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And culture is really, really tough to deal with. Even in a relatively small organization like we have here at Aventria, we had two companies combined, two companies with essentially almost the exact same values and work ethic and integrity and experience set. And it was a beast to align culture. Good luck, CVS and Aetna is all I can say. I read a comment on LinkedIn. Someone wrote, the CVS and Aetna merger is a great strategy that will fail. (laughs) Here's a third theme that makes it tough to achieve anti-fragility that we need to kind of contemplate here, and that is infrastructure and sunk costs. I just mentioned culture. As they say, culture eats strategy for breakfast, but infrastructure and sunk costs eat culture for lunch. If you've got heavy infrastructure to support, you become a slave to it. you got to feed the beast you've created, and you're kind of trapped in path dependencies and behavior to amortize all those MRI machines or diagnostic equipment or whatever you got there. Or maybe you have to continue a partnership that challenges integrity because we can't get out of it. And that leaves us ripe for disruption because we're not doing things the right way. Here's the question that I often use to test if there's a sunk cost issue, if we're doing things for the wrong reasons because we have spent so much money building something that we're hesitant to tear it all down and lose our money in air quotes. If you had to do it all over again, would you do it the way that you did? If you answer no to that question, effectively what that means is your lunch just got eaten. (laughs) How do you deal with sunk costs? You could start up or sponsor an innovation lab because it's going to be the safety valve when your main business eventually starts to decline or gets eaten up by a well-funded party from another industry without any baggage who comes in and does it better because they're starting from scratch. I keep thinking about how I don't want to fall prey to the same fate as the train industry, the industry who thought they were in the train business until they figured out too late that they're actually in the transportation business. Hopefully we won't be in the healthcare or sick care business much longer, but we have to think about what does the healthy business look like? The way to escape this sunk cost bias is to reinvent ourselves to thrive in whatever comes after sick care. Here's the fourth theme that makes it really tough, and that's these oligopolies. It's they're for real. And these vertical mergers make it even more so. We have these massive behemoths that control so much of the market with massive leverage and power. I've had several guests who have said that the way to overcome oligopolistic influence is to change the game. In fact, Pramod John talks about this at length in episode 162. Scott Barclay, also on episode 155, talks about the connection between empathy and successful business models. And he offers three strategies to win within the current healthcare ecosystem. Another way to think about it is in Anti-Fragile, the book, the author talks about doing things that are practical and small scale, not system wide, to grow in kind of a cascade rooted in providing awesome value. Because consider this, these oligopolies whose strength is dependent upon raw market power, they have so much vested interest that if they lose their balance and need to step outside the path that they're dependent upon, they might not be able to. They're just so locked in. 
And in that moment, organizations who have an actual value prop built on creating actual value, not just dominating by their sheer size alone, it might be these organizations who can David their way over Goliath in those moments. I think the anti-fragile concept is truly fascinating. And it's definitely something that any business owner, especially one with a long game, should really be fixated on, especially now in the healthcare industry. Because I do believe that any business that isn't anti-fragile, sooner or later, is going to get knocked flat. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.